Michigan State University has confirmed three more internal Title IX investigations. Tallahassee police intend to pursue their domestic assault investigation of Florida State running back. In this episode. Texas Tech University faculty member sexually harassed a student on a university trip. The University of Virginia is the subject of a new federal investigation. Title IX investigation into an alleged sexual assault. All four rapes reported in the last three months have been referred to the Title IX office. Under the Title IX of the Civil Rights Act. We explore the underbellies of the offices that are supposed to deliver justice in the most sensitive of misconduct cases on campus. Those where there are allegations of sexual misconduct. You're really in a very raw emotional state. And they'll like hand you like a 50 page single space, 10 point font policy and be like, sign this form saying you understand this. So it's possible that a school really does not know how many Title IX cases they've handled in the last three years. That number, right, does not is not readily available. That is possible. Yeah. All these people are attorneys and they like to split hairs about what's whether it's actually legally defined, or you know. The, what we were advised was to not even print it out and put it in the file. Which is essentially an avoidance of the law. I mean, yeah. So the, the problem, in my view, is that Title IX is not insulated from the political process. It's in fact a political football. From the University of Florida's Breckner Center for Freedom of Information, I'm Sarah Gannam, and you're listening to an episode of Why Don't We Know, the podcast that dives deep into data and comes out with real stories. A big part of the reason we don't know what happens inside schools and universities when it comes to sexual assault and harassment cases is a real and valid concern for the privacy of victims. More than any other crime, victims of sexual assault are given extra protections, not just in the educational system, but by the courts and by the media and general public who understand that this is an extremely personal crime that warrants privacy. But at the university level, privacy is often used as a weapon against the people it's supposed to protect. It often causes victims themselves to be kept from information about their own cases. It causes repeat offenders to escape the scrutiny of the press, and it allows institutions to cover their tracks, to hide how they are handling cases, if they are handling them at all. The University of Portland is now opening an investigation. The University of Kentucky under fire tonight accused of failing to properly investigate accusations of a sexual assault. It is investigating how the university handled three Title IX related cases. I wish I could start this episode by telling you exactly how the process works when a student reports sexual misconduct to his or her university. But I can't really do that. And the reason why is because it's different everywhere. There is no one set flowchart, no list of rules for how universities are supposed to handle these cases. And so trying to navigate the school disciplinary process, that has gotten a lot of attention in the last several years, negative attention. Students on both sides complain about unfair and inconsistent practices. About 10 years ago, during the Obama administration, things were so bad for survivors in particular, the Department of Education wrote a public memo, commonly referred to as the Dear Colleague Letter, because that's how it was addressed. It started with the words, Dear Colleague. 
It put schools on notice, telling them that any sexual assault reported to the university could potentially become what's called a Title IX investigation. Title IX is a federal law enacted in 1972, prohibiting sex discrimination in education. I want to be clear about something. Sexual assault itself is not a Title IX violation. The potential for a Title IX violation happens when an allegation of sexual assault is not taken seriously by the university where it's reported. If it's not taken seriously, that's where the sex discrimination comes in. Up until this point, in the late 2000s, Title IX was not commonly associated with sexual assault. So when Obama's Department of Education warned that failing to investigate sexual assaults could be a Title IX violation, what universities heard was, this could cost us money. But not every college had a Title IX coordinator trained and ready to act on all this new guidance. If you were a college administrator at the time, I think you felt a little bit punch drunk. That's Brett Sokolow, an attorney and university consultant in Title IX cases, speaking to the American Bar Association about this. That, that was a capacity, a skill set, even a profession that had to be built within the field. But who's going to carry out all of these instructions, those administrators who didn't exist in 2011? The result was a huge bottleneck in the system. And not just because universities were unprepared, but because people started talking about this problem a lot more. We see clearly what appears to be a pattern. So overall, what we're looking for is a culture shift. Victims were reporting at much higher rates and telling their stories publicly to reporters. I was raped in my ninth and final semester at the University of Utah. My freshman year, my first semester, I went to a couple fraternity parties where I was groped from behind. Um, they said, we don't need your consent. This is happening. It was bad enough that I felt, you know, defeated and powerless in other ways. The next thing I know, I'm upstairs in a room and the door is getting slammed and locked. Advocates became more vocal too, demanding information in a way that wasn't happening before. And then... The accused students have rights. Those who were accused started to raise their voices too, questioning the constitutionality of this whole college tribunal system. I tried to object a few times. I wasn't allowed to do that. Niche law firms began to emerge, focused solely on reputation restoration for college students accused of misconduct. I was afraid. I convinced myself that this isn't happening. I was helpless. Well, um, you know, ultimately, I think it was an enormously paradigm-shifting uh, set of instructions. I called Brett Sokolow to talk about this more. But since this is a podcast and audio quality is important, I want to warn you beforehand. It's kind of hard to hear everything he says, and so there are times when I'll repeat it back for clarity. Sokolow explained in more detail the origins of the Dear Colleague letter and how big of an impact it had, along with the guidance that followed it three years later. I think there were a couple of prime movers in Vice President Biden's office. Uh, who determined that they wanted the Department of Education uh, to you know, make some moves toward using Title IX to better solidify uh, victim protections. 
He told me it was then Vice President Joe Biden's office that pushed for the Dear Colleague letter. The letter in 2011, followed by the, the Q&A in 2014, uh, really changed the fundamental direction that colleges and universities were taking on uh, approaches to sexual violence. I think prior to that time, uh, they were light on sanctions, they were reticent to impose their own suspensions, they were um, uh, doubtful or skeptical and, and not very trauma-informed in, in their approaches with respect to survivor support. He says they were not very trauma-informed in their approach with respect to survivor support. The result was a complete reversal. They started issuing interim suspensions on very thin evidence. And so I think that, that what uh, higher ed interpreted out of the, the letter, and I'm not sure the letter said this, but what higher ed interpreted out of the letter was a, a theme of uh, you've neglected the women or you've neglected the complainant, and now you need to fix that. But, but higher ed's response to that was an overcorrection to the point where you know, respondents then were being found in violation for things that really weren't offenses or the schools were calling offenses that really they shouldn't. Uh, and so, you know, this it, it's been a, a process now uh, for 10 years, you know, at least, that, that we have this pendulum swinging politically. Politics. This went from an issue on college campuses to a Washington talking point. And we all know what happens when that happens. And so the, the Obama administration, they swung the pendulum. It went further than it should have. And now you have the Trump administration coming in and swinging it back and swinging it over in an overcorrecting way again. So you know, the problem, in my view, is that Title IX is not insulated from the political process. It's, in fact, a political football. And, and we wind up with a moving target every four or eight years as there's regime change in Washington, rather than having governing law that sticks to enduring principles that are immune to the, uh, to the political process. To this day, victim advocate organizations will fervently say that the system is designed in favor of the accused. And organizations focused on the rights of the accused say the system is rigged to deprive them of their freedom. Both sides are really unhappy. Anecdotally, you can find stories to illustrate both points of view. I have. I have reported on times where victims have very clearly been mistreated, and times where universities have very clearly violated the due process rights of the accused. But anecdotes aren't really what we're after in this podcast. What we are after is data, real comprehensive data, And in this case, that means outcomes. Are there repeat offenders who remain on campus? And how often does that happen? What are the punishments that are being given to people who are found responsible? Knowing that would help the public hold universities to account. That's what we set out to get for this episode. We asked about 40 of the largest public universities in the country for information about the number of Title IX cases and the outcomes of those cases. We asked everybody the same thing, yet we got wildly different responses. 
If you've been listening to prior episodes of this podcast, I'm sure you're not surprised to hear me say this. It was the case for a lot of the topics that we covered. The data was so inconsistent that it was impossible to make any comparisons or to see trends or to really evaluate how universities are handling the responsibility of adjudicating these sensitive cases. There is no usable information when you end up with 40 different kinds of data. The variations were so great that in one bizarre example, two schools that are part of the same University of California state system gave us different degrees of information. A few schools, about a dozen of them, redacted names of those accused but gave us a general idea of the accusation made, if it was sexual harassment or sexual assault, stalking or something else, and then for that same case they told us the year and the punishment if there was one. That's exactly what we were looking for. Other schools sent us the link to a glossy annual report with colorful pie charts and bar graphs. These reminded me of corporate sales reports, expensive-looking documents with data that is already manipulated to show or not show what the school wants you to see. They included bits of information, like 14% of cases resulted in sanctions, and 80% of reports were against somebody not affiliated with the university. Stuff like that. Simply relying on that information It is nearly impossible to see when cases are being mishandled. Those reports most definitely will not answer questions like these. Are there professors who are repeatedly being accused of harassment but also repeatedly allowed to keep their positions? Or are student-athletes routinely given more lenient punishments than non-athletes? Or are there any fraternity houses where multiple complaints have been made within a certain period of time? So many of these public universities gave us very little to work with. The University of Oklahoma, for example. For year 2019, they said they had four cases with findings and four cases without findings. That's it. That's all we got. And still, that is better than the schools that told us something kind of unbelievable. Hey, Bob. Uh, my name is Sarah Gannam. I'm a reporter uh, with the Breckner Center at the University of Florida. There were several schools that sent us particularly puzzling responses. They claimed they could not provide any data at all because they said they don't compile it. This is, on a smaller scale, a similar problem that we found in episode one, when we asked for head injury numbers in NCAA sports. But for some reason, I found it to be even more unbelievable in this episode. I think probably because these cases have the potential to be so high profile. There's a lot of public scrutiny and journalist inquiry on this topic. It is really hard for me to believe that a university just would not know how many of these cases they are handling. So I called them. I wanted to uh, clarify something with you. So when we asked for documents reflecting the number of cases, specifically sexual assault or sexual harassment cases, that number does not exist? That number, right, does not, is not readily available. I mean, it, it, it exists in theory because we have the case files. Um, we just have to calculate it. So I don't, I don't believe that sexual assault and sexual harassment is, 
something that's that's automatically tracked by the Title IX office. That's the Open Records Coordinator at the University of Texas, Austin. His job is to take requests from people like me and go to the relevant department and find out if there are documents that should be shared. I guess where I'm like sort of just hung up on this is I would assume that that was that was like something that would be like every Title IX director would want to know how many cases they have. So I just figured that was a very easy request, like very broad. Yeah, the, the number of, you're not asking for the number of cases. You're asking for the number of sexual assault or sexual harassment cases, which is a subset of the total number of cases. So if you were asking just for the total number of Title IX cases, I think we could answer that. No, we right. are we are specifically asking for this category of offenses, yeah. Right. And okay. I think that's where it's kind of Catching, catching us a little bit. Okay, so for example, for Title Nine. See if I can find the the reports that are released. Certainly, this. This sort of thing will be tracked better going forward, starting on January 1st. So the other issue is that you're asking about prior years, which have been, we haven't been keeping that sort of data historically, but there was a new bill passed that um, requires us to keep track of this sort of thing. So, so going forward, there will be, there will be significant, a significantly larger amount of information that's tracked. Starting in January of 2021. 2020. Okay, so starting this year, you're gonna you're gonna start to keep track of how many of these cases you you have come through the office every yes, year. I believe so. So, just to make sure I'm not misunderstanding anything, if the Title IX office director wanted to know, like, are sexual assault allegations going up, going down? Have we had more allegations against faculty or a certain department is seeing a lot, like, from a trends perspective, like, it's pretty impossible yeah. to track that at this point? Certainly not. It would not be impossible. It would just be potentially take a lot of time to pull those numbers together. So, so that's the issue isn't that the data doesn't exist at all. It's just that it doesn't. Well, it is that the data doesn't exist, but it's not like the the case files that from which the data would be produced don't exist. So if if we wanted to, we could go back and review all the case files and figure out how many sexual harassment complaints were filed in 2017, 2018, 2019. You know what I mean? To do this... The university estimates it would cost us, the requester, about $4,000. We decided not to pay for it. All these people are attorneys, and they like to split hairs about what's, whether it's actually legally defined or... <laughs> That's Ron Smith. He's the records officer at Weber State University, where they gave us a similar response. I totally understand. That's why I thought I would pick up the phone and call you and ask, because it doesn't seem reasonable to me that the Title IX director would not know how many cases they handle. I can approach them again and uh, do a follow-up. Thank you. I appreciate that. 
Ron Smith sent me an email follow-up a few minutes later. It included a chart with some pretty detailed information about reports and sanctions from years 2012 to 2015. But since 2015, he wrote, that WSU has not compiled similar information. And then he wrote, quote, I am informed that this will be done in the future, but do not have a timeline for when that will be completed, unquote. Other schools, who initially claimed that they did not have this data, later replied to our email inquiries by saying things like, It's not that we do not know the number, it's that we do not have existing records that have that information. That one was from the University of Missouri. San Jose State said something similar. They said they have a document, but it does not accurately represent all Title IX cases. The University of Maryland simply replied that we weren't accurately characterizing their response, but they still provided no number. Of all of the schools we requested information from, only one, Cal State Sacramento, actually gave us the names of the faculty or staff who were accused, what they were accused of, and what the punishment was. One school from 40 requests. It made me think, this really should be simpler. Wouldn't it be nice if when your kid was applying to a university, if you could compare safety the same way you can when you're, say, buying them a car? Let's just dream for a second. There would be a website, you could put in your top five or even 10 choice schools and compare side by side statistics like the number of faculty disciplined for harassment, the number of students accused of sexual assault, and how many of those were actually punished. It's nice to dream. I typed into Google, compare the safety of universities. And a bunch of results came up, like the list of the safest schools in America, stuff like that. But those lists are based on something called Cleary data. The Cleary Act of 1990 forces universities to provide an annual report of crimes on campus. But Cleary reports show just a small subset of sexual misconduct cases. It often only counts offenses that happen on campus. That means that Cleary often does not count cases that happen at off-campus housing or meeting locations, like, for example, an off-campus fraternity. So those lists are pretty useless. All Cleary data really tells us in this case is what is possible. It shows that it is realistic to ask that there be some sort of nationwide, consistent reporting method for Title IX cases and their outcomes. The government is totally equipped to do it. It just doesn't do it. And one of the results of that is the lack of consistency that leads back to the original problem, that there is no one set process for how universities handle these kinds of cases. Universities are given guidance, which changes from administration to administration, and they are told to basically figure it out. So a victim could have a completely different experience, depending on the school they report to. In the absence of a set standard, private companies have stepped in to offer training on best practices. And the largest one of these organizations is called ATIXA. It stands for the Association of Title IX Administrators, and it's run by this guy. Oh, and then I 
think there's a, a three-pronged approach. Attorney Brett Sokolow, who you heard from at the beginning of this conversation. For approximately 1600 bucks per person, a university can send a Title IX administrator to his training, where he's established different modules for writing reports, doing interviews, conducting hearings, and how to implement all of that on campus. You've created the closest thing possibly that comes to universal training, just based on the sheer number of people that attend your conferences. Right. I mean... Right. Is that sort of what you're going for here, is to try to create more uniformity and get everyone onto the same page? Well, um, I think, you know, our official party line is that we would encourage uniformity where it's beneficial and encourage um, individualization where it makes sense. So what, what I think I would definitely reject is this perception that so many schools have that they really need to do things their own way. Um, because their culture is so uniquely different from the college down the street. And so, yes, I think in, in some ways we have moved toward uh, a greater level of homogenization, but I also will acknowledge at the same time that that, that approach is easily then misunderstood because people will say, well, it takes to believe this or it takes to believe that, whereas we're actually giving a much more nuanced message. I asked Brett. Why are so many universities so reluctant to tell the public how they dole out punishments in these cases? Well, I mean, I, I, I don't know whether there's just an institutional tendency toward, uh, you know, keeping these things contained or whether they're actually acting out of a benevolent belief that uh, the more transparent they are, the less likely uh, people who experience sexual violence are to come forward. Um, because they fear their their privacy will be jeopardized by whatever is released. So um, I'm not sure what the motivation is, but I think if it's the latter, that's genuine. You mean it it dissuades victims? Is that what you're saying? Yeah, exactly. Let's take that hypothesis and experiment with it for a little bit, starting inside a Title IX office. Okay, so my name is Liz Abdenor. It's pretty hard to get an honest look inside a Title IX office at a university. There aren't many people willing to talk candidly about what goes on during the investigation of these cases. Um, I grew up in Michigan, uh, went to Michigan State for undergrad. But after our reporting left us with the impression that things are pretty disorganized and chaotic, I wanted to try to get an insider view. And there is one woman, Liz Abdner, in East Lansing, Michigan, who is in a pretty unique position to shed some light. Um, didn't really know what I wanted to do back then. Um, just knew I had this vague idea that I wanted to help people. Um, so I ended up deciding to go to law school. Liz Abdner is an attorney who represents victims of sexual assault on campuses. She most recently sued the NCAA on behalf of seven women who alleged they were assaulted by athletes at three different universities. But what makes her stand out is that she actually worked inside a Title IX office for several years. I talked to Liz one morning in New York, where she happened to be taking a short vacation to visit some old law school friends. This was pre-COVID, when we could still sit and meet in a studio and have an in-person conversation. In late 2014, um, there was a lot of local news about problems that my alma mater, Michigan State, was having with Title IX back in 2014. And I was like, 
I can get in there and I can help and I can make a difference. Um, so I ended up uh, applying for and accepting a position there. Um, worked there for about three years. And well, let me stop you for a second. Yeah. So for our listeners who now probably associate Michigan State very, um, you know, closely with the Larry Nasser scandal, this mm-hmm. is actually pr- way pre pre Larry Nasser. Right. To give you a little more context, this was around the time that protests were taking place nationwide, not just at Michigan State, because people were upset about how long university investigations were taking. At MSU, Liz told me some cases lasted 200 to 300 days. During the time that I was there, we were able to quite significantly improve the timeline and the process. Um, we got it down to an average of 80 days for an investigation. Wow. That's um, a huge difference. Yeah. Yeah, it was great. And then um, then the Larry Nasser matter had broken. When this story breaks, Liz tells me the floodgates opened and reports began overwhelming the Title IX office at Michigan State. Um, I think that was in August of 2016 when Indy Star first reported about it. And um, our office started to get a significant increase in reports of um, sexual assault, sexual harassment, sex discrimination, because what was happening was people were reading that story in the news and, and saying, I want to talk about something that happened to me at Michigan State maybe six months ago, maybe 10 years ago. And so there was this uptick in reporting. Yeah, exactly. So when you took this job, I imagine you were feeling this is a noble job to take, right? This is something you can go in there and you can make a difference. I thought so. Yeah. Yeah. That was definitely um, my goal. Yeah. And you Um, weren't you're not exactly advocating for victims, but if the job is done correctly, justice is served, right? Yeah, justice is served or at, at a minimum of uh, people get a fair process. And so even if they don't feel justice is served, they can move on. You know, I mean, that for me is one of the things I always think about uh, with that work is that it's not always about what the specific outcome is of that process, but just feeling like you went through a process that was more or less fair so that even if you don't get the outcome you wanted, you can move on. And having that done in a reasonable amount of time is right. really important because... Sitting there going through that process is extremely emotionally difficult and really takes a toll on people. And so, you know, even if the outcome isn't in your favor, whichever side you happen to be on, once it's completed, you can feel like you got a fair shake and and you can heal. This is exactly why outcomes are so important. It gives the public insight into whether the process was fair. We can't look at the process because of the privacy concerns, and we get that. But there has to be a way to hold the university accountable to make sure they are handling things properly. Unidentifiable outcomes is the best way of doing that. Liz Abdner told me her experience inside a Title IX office didn't live up to her expectations. In early 2018, in the aftermath of the Nassar scandal at Michigan State, she decided to leave, frustrated with the way that the university was restructuring and handling these cases. So it was really a very chaotic time. So you leave and what did you decide to do? Well, so what I did is I ended up starting my own law firm um, where I now represent, uh, partially represent individuals who are going through the Title IX and civil rights investigation process at schools. And then I also do special education work as well. I have to say, I don't think I've ever spoken to anyone who has been in both of those roles. 
I'm the only person that I know of <laughs> that does that yeah. has the experience kind of on the inside, right? But now is using that to advocate for their clients. Right. Liz is in a really great position to explain some things that have been really puzzling us as we get data back. Actually, what I should say is as we don't get data back. For example, I told Liz about the schools where they claim not to track this data at all. How could this be true? I asked her. That just to me like is basic. Yeah. And, you know, I agree. And especially coming from my background as an attorney, I've always worked in offices that had, you know, very um, detailed case management systems. But uh, my experience in and I only worked at one institution, obviously, but my experience in higher ed was that that type of data collection and data management is much more hit or miss. So it's possible that a school really does not know how many Title IX cases they've handled in the last three years. That is possible, yeah. Was it was that the case at MSU? Um, I think they knew, but whether that's something that they had on paper, you know, that they could produce if requested is a different question. Right, so, because the law says, and this is for listeners who don't know this, the law says that if someone asks through a Freedom of Information Act request or through a, 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 a public records request, for a document or for information, it has to exist in a document already. The school does not have to create the document that's for right. you. And that's something we ran into. Like schools would say, well, we can give you this info for $4,000, right. which is crazy, right? No one's going to pay $4,000 for a report about how many cases you handled last year. Right, right. Uh, UT Austin was one example that sticks out in my mind because they really did ask for more than $4,000 in order to provide us with that information. Yeah, it's it's weird. Um, uh, You know, it certainly doesn't seem like best practices to me at all. But there's also, you know, sort of the question of do schools really want to know that? Because I think on some level, maybe they don't want to know how much of a problem with you know, sex discrimination they really have. On some level, maybe they don't want to know. In a subsequent conversation, Liz told me that not all schools have the money to adequately train Title IX staff. Um, I also am not sure that all institutions... Um, you know, have that much interest in improving their skills to the best they can be because, uh, you know, it, it is expensive. It is something that um, is going to take them some time to do. And with the volume of cases that they have, uh, they may be more interested in spending their time and resources on trying to get through cases rather than, um, you know, doing their absolute best. It's sort of a quality versus quantity type question, I think, at some institutions. It's rational to think that officials who run institutions of higher ed, charged with protecting and educating young people, would have this kind of thing high on their priority list. Wouldn't you want to know if you are dealing with more or less sexual misconduct than other similarly sized schools? Or how your outcomes or investigation times differ from other universities? Liz told me that universities do have case management systems that can be tailored to spit out this data as requested. Whether or not they share that data is a different story. Let's just kind of give a lay of the land of what that what these case management systems are. Your um, your experience with them, like 
Do you believe that most schools have them? So uh, from at least the time that I was doing the work regularly, there were two main um, systems for case management that um, schools used. I don't know that the majority of schools use them. Um, I think probably a good number of large institutions use them. I think probably smaller, you know, private institutions, it would be less likely that they might be using them just because they have a lot fewer cases and it might actually be reasonable to keep track of by hand. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, But the two systems are called advocate and maxient. Essentially what they do is it's very much like a legal case management system where you've got every individual case, who the parties are, who the investigator is, um, what date it was opened, what the allegations are, um, and and you can set it up to track different things. So a lot of times we hear from inside, you know, from whispers from inside institutions that they don't create a lot of documents because they don't want them to be able to be subject to open records laws. Is it possible that they have these numbers in the system, but they're not creating a document? I I think that's very possible. And it's funny, um, actually, that you asked me this, because I've actually talked with several journalists in Michigan who have been trying to get the same information. And I've given them different specific things to ask for. So, you know, any advocate reports generated from, you know, March 1 to March 31st of, you know, 2019 or something like that. And repeatedly, they've told me that, that the, the, they're told by the university that they don't exist. So um, I think it is possible that maybe they're no longer generating those reports. So, so unless they're not creating these reports, which is the whole point of having the system, right? Uh, yeah, right. Yeah. Then are they telling the truth when they say they don't have them? I don't know. I do know from responding to FOIA requests that they can get very much into the semantics of what the FOIA request is. Uh Potentially to try to avoid responding, which is why I've tried to, you know, give some advice to some of these journalists about, you know, they might they might have sent a request that says, you know, give me a report of all of the incidents, you know, for the last three years or something. And they might be like, oh, we don't have a report of incidents like they would think to themselves, well, we have a report of cases or something like that. You know, Um, I mean, that seems really like a that seems like you're avoiding the law. I feel like that too, but I mean... In fact, Liz told me that there were conversations in the office when she worked there about keeping certain kinds of information out of the case files for the specific reason that one day they might be made public through an open records request. Now, they they could still redact it. That's what's Looking back, that's what's strange to me about it. The law has a provision for that, right? The law says you can redact personal information or information that is exempt from open records laws. So like attorney-client privileged advice. So if if I, as an investigator, receive some advice from general counsel's office, that could certainly be redacted. But, um, you know, what we were advised was to not even print it out and put it in the file. Which is essentially an avoidance of the law. I mean, yeah. You know, I mean, it's, it's, I don't know, you know, it's... Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Just for the record, Michigan State has not yet responded to our request, so I don't know if they're going to give us this information or if they're going to outright deny us. Hopefully, by the time this podcast airs, we will have a response from them. We did eventually hear back from Michigan State. They gave us one of those glossy magazine-style reports with a lot of manipulated data, but no outcomes. Nothing that shows how cases were resolved, what punishments were given. 
Of course, this isn't really just about Michigan State. It's about understanding why some universities don't count these cases or don't disclose the outcomes of cases. And to help us get a little closer to finding that answer, we're going to take a look at some recent court cases. That's after the break. This is Why Don't We Know. Get updates and read more about our reporting by visiting our website, whydon'twenow.org. We're posting new stuff all the time to help people like you better understand Why Don't We Know. That number, right, does not, is not readily available. I mean, it- Earlier, I told you about a phone conversation I had with the records officer at UT Austin. It exists in theory because we have the case files. Um, we just have to calculate it. I guess where I'm like sort of just hung up on this is I would assume that that was that was like something that would be like every Title IX director would want to know how many cases they have. This this sort of thing will be tracked better going forward. And he told me this kind of information will start being tracked by state mandate. We haven't been keeping that sort of data historically, but there was a new bill passed that um, requires us to keep track of this sort of thing. That new bill that passed was a response to a cultural problem. The fact that Texas administrators were not doing their job of recording when people alleged harassment or rape. So basically, when I asked the question earlier, why wouldn't a university keep track? And Liz Abdner said, Because I think on some level, maybe they don't want to know how much of a problem with, you know, sex discrimination they really have. Seems like she was on to something. So going back to that hypothesis that university Title IX offices are not sharing outcomes because they want to protect victims, that theory was right at the heart of a few major court cases, cases that have been seesawing back and forth through the judicial system for the last several years. One case is in Texas, at the University of Texas, Austin, which we've been talking a lot about. The others are in North Carolina at UNC Chapel Hill and the University of Kentucky. All of them are about outcomes. Why Don't We Know reporter Mariana Fiello is following these cases for us and has the breakdown. All of these cases originated with reporters filing basic open records requests. They were asking for the punishments handed down in sexual assault and harassment cases. But it's important to note they weren't looking for the names of the people who were involved in these cases. They simply wanted to know the outcomes and how the schools handled them. Well, for example, when I was working on the open records request for this episode, I noticed that several times the punishment for a student who was found responsible for a sexual assault was to write an essay about how sorry they were. That was it. So it's that kind of detail that reporters were looking for. They want to see if universities are taking these allegations seriously. And the best way of doing that while maintaining the privacy of the students involved is by looking at the punishments. Additionally, in Kentucky, the case was about the outcomes of the investigations that involved faculty and staff. Reporters there wanted to be able to see trends like, is a certain professor getting repeated warnings for harassing students? And are there staff members who were simply transferred, or even worse, allowed them to remain in their jobs? It is public information, and ultimately, so far, the courts have ruled in favor of the journalists, but the universities continue to fight these cases by arguing that sharing outcomes are a violation of the student privacy under federal law. That federal law is called the Family Education Rights and Privacy Act. 
It's most commonly known as FERPA. 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 In my experience and in many cases, uh, schools use FERPA as a shield. You shouldn't be able to say it's not, you know, it's FERPA protected and therefore journalists can't get it. But, you know, it's, I don't know, FERPA protected and the parent also can't get it. I was initially informed that they could not provide me with my FERPA record. That's coming up. That is outrageous that they should be denied that information. On Why Don't We Know. This episode was written and produced by me, Sarah Gannam. The associate producer is Tori Whitten. In addition, Mariana Fiello, Tori Whitten, Rachel Shermer, and Chastity Maynard filed public records requests for this episode. This episode was edited by Amy Fu and James Sullivan. Music for this episode was composed by Daniel Townsend. Audio mixing was done by James Sullivan. The executive producer is Frank Lamonti. Why Don't We Know is a production of the Breckner Center for Freedom of Information at the University of Florida. A special thanks to the Hearst Family Foundation for providing the grant money that supported this reporting. For more information, please visit our website at www.whydontweknow.org.